mum and my husband decided that I needed to go somewhere else. And so we got to the big pineapple and I went off. And as I came back, there was this girl with a baby and she looked like me and I just knocked me down. I got back to the table where they were sitting and I just was crying. And so everyone was cranky at me. They were all angry because, you know, I was like, the one that was spoiling everyone's holiday. Mum kept saying, people who cry out work too, Bob. My name's Teresa Hudson, coordinator of the Community Information Centre in Townsville. And in today's podcast, I sit down with Diana Lynch, owner of Poppet Head Gift Shop in Chartist Towers. Diana's story comes with tragedy, so please take care when listening today. And if this story raises any concerns for you, support contact details are listed in the description below. Stillbirth. It's a hard word to say. It's a hard word to grapple with. And it's a hard thing to overcome. But what does that actually feel like for the person going through it? Do we really understand? Do we really know what the right thing to say is? Diana talks us through her story and her journey when this happened to her as well as the services that she used to get through it. This episode of Brave was recorded on the lands of the Gujala, Woolgarugaba and Bindal people. The Community Information Centre pays respects to the traditional custodians of this land. So your shop is... Poppet Head. Poppet Head. Yes. Where did the name come from? I didn't do it. Um, the shop opened over 40 years ago and a poppet head is the head frame over a gold mine. And so the people who opened it didn't want to have another gold city or a gold nugget business because there's so many of those. So they called it poppet head and we've always had the poppet head as a symbol for our shop. When did you take it over? I bought it in 2009 in the middle of a um, financial economic crisis and yeah, it wasn't that bad. In Within five years, we doubled its turnover. Um, And then like everywhere else in Australia, retail started going backwards. And so we, you know, we've had a few tougher years where I employ less people, work harder myself. And um, COVID last year was, (laughs) you know, an extra nail in the coffin, except thank God for um, JobKeeper, you know, it, it kept me afloat. And then we had a really good tourist season for August, September, October, when Queenslanders were allowed to travel in Queensland. We had our Best August, September, October for about seven years. And then this year's much the same. You know, every month you have to go back seven, six years to find a better month. So at the moment we're travelling fine while there's so many people moving around. So were you born and bred in Charters Towers? No. Where did you come from? I grew up in Sydney. My father was born outside Clermont in the bush and my mother was born in western New South Wales and she was out outside Isisford near Longreach, governessing. And she met my father there who was roost shooting and they got married a year later in Sydney and lived a year at Isisford and then moved to Sydney and I was born in Sydney. And TV came to Sydney the year I was born. You know, it was we had everything. We weren't rich, but we had everything. And then when I was 11, Dad packed us up in a truck, kicking and screaming to the bush. There were three kids by then and we went outside Clermont where he was born on a goldfield called Mycleare. And we lived in the bush with no electricity, no running water. We did primary correspondence. We went into Clermont regularly and the kids there, some of the kids didn't even have shoes on to go to school. You know, it was just stunning. You know, there were moments where, you know, I was the eldest and felt very cheated. 
because I didn't get to have – I did go to grade 12 on correspondence, but it's not the easiest way to get an education and there's lots of things I missed out on. But in time, you know, we built a tin shack, but it was hard work. I milked 30 goats every morning before breakfast. We had a couple of hundred chooks, some ducks, pigs, and we had a big vegetable garden, you know. But, yeah, it was – It was. I don't ever want to live like that again, but I know – I, I know how to chop the head off a chook and pluck it and clean it if I have to. And I know how to, um, you know, grow my own vegetables, but it's all a lot of trouble. Yeah. yeah. When I was 14, I developed this double scoliosis and ended up in a walking plaster cast that weighed, I, I weighed six stone dripping wet in those days and the cast weighed 18, so a stone and a half. And I um, wore that for oh, 16 months in the heat and the misery. There were gaps where I'd have three months off and then six months in and then three months off. As a teenager, off. that would have oh, been a little Oh, it was a misery. Yeah, total misery. Hard. Everybody else had waists and boobs and I had this great big lump of plaster from the, my, you know, under my chin all the way to the top of my legs. And so I often in three summers in a row, I went to Sydney to my grandparents and stayed with them because I just couldn't cope with the heat. Yeah, so that sort of changed things for my life as well. But yeah, and then by the time I was 17, 18, my parents had split up. Mum really couldn't hack the life and, you know, she tried really hard, but it was hard work. And Dad got found somebody else. And we sort of drifted. We had jobs, but in between, we drifted between Clermont and Brisbane and Sydney even. Yeah, and then I'd happened to drift back to Clermont when I was about 19 for a visit I hadn't long got out of plaster for the last time. And I came back and met my first husband there and ended up marrying at like 19. I was only 19. It's not my fault. Anyway, that, ha- that happened. And, and we ended up in Emerald for a little while. And the mines moved into Emerald the same time we did. And because I guess we'd moved quite a bit and we didn't have a real house, all I could think about was owning a house and putting down roots. So I worked really hard and he did and we saved $1,200, which was the price of a block of land. But by the time we did that, the mines had bought every bit of land and land was now $12,000 a block. And we could see we were never going to be able to get a house in Emerald or not for a long, long time. So we packed up, we had friends here in Charters Towers and they had bought a cheap block. So we drove up and had a look and the council and the mines department had organised these mining homestead leases. And for twelve for $1,000, we got a block of land and then we moved up. And, and yeah, over time, it took probably five years, six years to get it to become a really nice house. But Does that house still stand here today? Yeah, it does. I don't own it anymore, but yeah, it does. So when did your first born arrive? I was 34. I put off having children. My sister had six children in six years. And she's oh, younger she's than me. she's a brave me. woman. She, yeah, well, they finally worked out what was causing it and stopped. <laughs> and the chaos, of course, in a house with six young children is huge and no money, you know, all they, and it couldn't work because she was too busy looking after all these children. And so it, I, she, I always say she's the reason I didn't have children till my 30s because she was the best contraceptive there was. <laughs> anyway, I had, I got pregnant at, 33 after quite a bit of trying and miscarried that baby 
And I thought that was the worst thing that could happen to you. I was just devastated, you know. And then I went back and I got pregnant and had little Joshua. And I was a full-time potter at this stage and had a shop here and I was managing with a baby that never slept and still trying to make pots and fire them into two o'clock in the morning and then go to work the next day and run the shop. And so we did this for a while. And then I just couldn't keep him in the shop anymore. He just got so naughty because he was lovely as long as him and I were there. But the second a customer walked in, he turned into this absolute monster a runoff or, you know, so I, I had to either put him in daycare or sell the shop. So I sold the shop because I waited so long to have him. I didn't want to give him to someone else. And then in 93, I went back thinking we'll have one more baby. And because by now I'm 36 and that baby is the baby that, that was still born. Her name was Emma Rose. So was your pregnancy normal and... Well, uh, everything was smooth sailing up until No, not really. She always measured um, from the very first scan two weeks too small. You know, they always said to me, oh, your dates are wrong. And I'd say, no, they're not because I'd been very conscious of dates. Anyway, Joshua's pregnancy, I was so well, so fit. I have to have cesareans because of my back, but, you know, the rest of it was a breeze. And then came Emma and I was ended up very early on getting a lot more fluid in the sac than is normal. And so by the end of the pregnancy, I was carrying three times the amnio fluid that other people would carry. So I looked enormous, but she was always two weeks smaller than my figures said. And I went used to go down every month to the Dr. Castles in Townsville, the obstetrician, who's just lovely. And he kept saying, I'm not really sure why you're carrying so much more fluid, but it was just, you know, the last two months I had to just sit and rest. And to right towards the end, probably about 30 weeks, Dr. Castle said to me, this baby's not going to go past 35 weeks. And he said, can, we, can you go to Brisbane and have a scan? There's a special scan down there. And he said, I don't want to pull a rabbit out of the hat here because she appeared to be perfectly normal, but small. And so we agreed to do that. And I booked to go down on the 13th. I was flying down on the 13th, which is a Monday of September. And I had to see Dr. Castles on the Monday morning on the way through and then come home, come back to Townsville and go into hospital on the Wednesday and have a cesarean that afternoon. You know, that was the plan. So the bags were all packed. Everything was in the car. And my husband was, took me down. Well, on the Friday before that Monday, I started worrying that she wasn't, the baby wasn't moving. But because there was so much fluid, the baby never seemed to move a lot. But I thought, oh, I can't, don't remember anything for the last 24 hours. So we went, I went up to the doctor, my GP, and he sent me to the hospital to have a, whatever it is, ECG or something where they put the things on. And the, no, the sister there wasn't a very nice lady. And Joshua was there being a two and a half year old and she did, was cranky and said, oh, look, everything's perfectly normal. You're just being hysterical and threw a bit of strip of paper at me. And so I took that back to my GP who later admitted to, he didn't look at it. And he said, look, you'll be right. Go and see the doctor on Monday and you're fine. You know, just be calm. And I was calm, but I was worried. But, you know, the doctors were all and everyone was happy, you know, that it was just me being a hysterical mother, which I've never been in my life. So I'll get to Dr. Castles on the Monday and I um, said to him, I 
I haven't felt the baby move, but I've had, you know, this thing done. And, and he took one look at it and I could see his face change. And he said to me, that's your heartbeat, you know. So he, um, he put me straight up on the table and did the ultrasound and I could see his face and I could see there was no heartbeat. And he said to me, you know, he got teary. He was a lovely doctor and cried with me and said, you know, Eddie was there, my, my husband was there and Josh was there waiting to see the baby on the, on the screen, of course. And, and he said to me, oh, the baby's gone. And, you know, he was, he, he was ups, really upset and he was not expecting that, of course. So then we sat down and said, like, you're numb, you don't really know what mm-hmm. you're doing. And so I was sent across the road to have a proper ultrasound because that's the next stage you have to do. And then um, I had to go into the martyr. And if you aren't having a cesarean, if you're having a normal birth, uh, you have to actually carry that baby till you go into labour normally. The, the procedure isn't to bring that baby on. So thank God I have to have cesareans because Noel, he's first he said, oh. Then he said, oh, no, you'll be right. We'll t- we'll take we'll get it this afternoon. We'll take her out. You know, didn't say her. Take the baby this afternoon. So I had a cesarean that afternoon, amid the absolute chaos. So she weighed three pounds something. I've forgotten. I've, I can't believe I've forgotten. But yeah, three pounds something. But perfect. You know, just perfect. But just not breathing. Did you get to hold her? I did. Not long enough. You don't know what to do in these situations until you've done them. And that's with every experience in life, I guess. You do things better and differently. But yeah, I did get to hold her for a while. So we only really had her for 20 minutes maybe because I was so worried about Josh being a nuisance and and not just that, but just him, he was out of his tree mm-hmm. because everything tipped over and he's two and a half, two and a half going on five. So if he'd been a, a young two and a half, it probably wouldn't have been as big an impact as being this switched on little person who was so aware of everything. And um, anyway, I sent her away and I had Josh for a while and and then Eddie went to a motel and I had to, um, I was there on my own and I'm a bad sleeper. So I didn't go to sleep that night at all. You know, they kept coming in saying, try and have a sleep, just rest. And I'm just, okay, I couldn't. And by the next day, the doctor came round and he said to me, I don't know what happened, you know, she's just perfect. And I went, I know, but she's stopped breathing. Anyway, you know, when I had Josh, I was 10 days in hospital with a cesarean. Mm, because it's a major surgery. Yeah, that's what you do. But when I had Emma, so I had her on the, mon- on the Monday afternoon. Wednesday afternoon, they took the staples out and sent me home. So I only had those two nights in hospital because... It has improved, but they didn't know what to do with somebody who didn't have a baby in the maternity ward, you know, and I wasn't making a fuss. I was numb. I was just sitting there numb and mum mum came and Joshua came and Eddie was there and my grandmother was alive then. She came up with mum. She lived with mum and nobody knew what to say. Nobody, you know, mum didn't even really acknowledge it. She just kept the odd time she'd have to, she'd say, oh, Diana lost the baby and that sent me around the twist. Like yeah, I'd, what did that sound like oh, when you hear that you lost the yeah, baby? Yeah, it was like I didn't lose the baby. I didn't put it somewhere and forget where it was or, you know, but that mum, she's the generation that doesn't deal with 
grief. They just mm. pretend it's not there and don't talk about it. And I get that, but it was difficult for me at the time. What would have been the right words to hear for oh. you, for someone in that situation? I don't know. Um, see, they no, none of them saw the baby. Like it would have been good if they wanted to see her or hold her or, or you know, call her by name even. But, mm. yeah, there was none of that. Um, and so they sent me home. And my best friend here, her daughter, who's also my good friend, were the funeral directors here. They brought down a little white coffin and, and came in and saw me and said, don't, you know, don't worry, we're looking after her. So, of course, if a baby is over 20 weeks and dies, it has to have a funeral, which, of course, is a good thing. But suddenly, instead of going to Brisbane and having a baby, we're organising a funeral. And I was just so numb, I couldn't even really make this. Well, I just let Eddie and Mum decide everything. I just it was too hard. So that's what we did. And we had a little funeral just at the cemetery. I just didn't want Josh to be there and that was a mistake too because he asked a million questions and he really needed to know and do the, know all that stuff. Mm. He didn't needed that closure as well. No, he did. Yeah, he did. And so mum, of course, the generation where you don't tell children anything, so she didn't want him to know and I didn't have a clue what was best at the time. I was barely surviving myself, let alone... Mm. Do you want to have a break? About six, eight weeks after Emma died, we had they'd done an autopsy and then we discovered she had something called Edwards syndrome, which is um, trisomy 18, where they end up with three 18 chromosomes. So a bit like Down syndrome, they end up with a spare chromosome, the 46 one. Well, this is the 18. And there's one in every 5,000 births, babies that are um, created have have trisomy 18, but most of them miscarry early. Um, some of them don't. Some of them miscarry, you know, in the second part. And then some are born, but they never flourish. It's called, it's incompatible with life. And the autopsy came back. Everything was perfect. All her organs, everything, they were tiny, of course, but everything. The day you read a baby's autopsy is a pretty tough day. Um, but in some ways that was like a giant relief. It wasn't anything I'd done, you know. It wasn't that I got up and went to the toilet one too many times and caused it to stop, you know, because of the blood pressure I had. All those things go through your head that it's something you did or, you know, that I'd had one glass of wine before I knew I was pregnant, you know, only one, but maybe that was what had done it or it's just stupid things, but you can't help doing it to yourself. you for a reason. You do, yeah. So you, you blame yourself or you... So that was that was good. And um, after about two weeks, mum and my husband decided that I needed to go somewhere else, not be here, and I wouldn't think about it, you know, the silliness of people really. But they were trying to do the right thing, but they just thought, you won't be grieving if you're somewhere else. And so we drove to Brisbane, which was a marathon trip with a big, with a sore, sore tummy that was Anyway, we got to the big pineapple and we walked in there and I wasn't eating really because I was just so stressed and mum had flopped food down in front of me 
and I'd take one look and then I'd have a panic attack kind of. My throat would close and I couldn't swallow and then she'd get really angry at me and, you know, it was like a vicious circle going round and round and I did a couple of panic attacks where I couldn't breathe and my heart was racing and I thought I was going to suffocate and I went to the doctor over that and he, Kevin here is a very down-to-earth man and I said, I'm so scared I'll have another one. He said, so what if you do? You know you're not going to die. You know you're all right. Just don't don't be frightened of being frightened. And so I never had another panic attack. He, um, he talked me out of it. But yeah, you're going down there. And so we get to the big pineapple. We're in there. And I went off to the toilet and the others went down to sit down. And as I came back, there was this girl with a baby, brand new baby. And she looked like me. She had brown curly hair and big glasses like I had at the time. And she had this brand new tiny baby wrapped in pink. And I, it just, I just knocked me down. I couldn't focus. So I got back to the table where they were sitting and I couldn't talk and I just was crying. And so everyone was cranky at me. They were all angry because I couldn't tell them why I was crying, you know, and, you know, I was like the one that was spoiling everyone's holiday. You know, I was in trouble all the time for, you know, mum kept saying people who cry out work too, Bob. So it was all very difficult. And just before I left Charters Towers, David Griffiths, our local chemist, came round home to see how I was. He's such a kind man. And he um, handed me a sheet, a piece of paper with the name Sands on it and a phone number and said, you know, I think if you ring these people, you might, it would be good, you know. So it took me a week. What did Sands stand Sands for? Sands stands for Stillbirth and Neonatal Deaths Society. And they're just a group all the counsellors, all the talk speakers, the people you speak to are all um, people who've lost babies, stillborn or neonatal death babies. So um, we got to Brisbane and a few days there, I was still a mess. And so I said, one day I'm going to ring. And mum was really angry that I was going to do this. So she went out. So I sat and I rang. It, it took me forever. It's so scary to ring somebody, a total stranger, but they were wonderful. You know, I rang in this lovely lady. I, you know, she said, can I, you know, are you okay? And, and I said, oh, my baby died. And she said, oh, what was your baby's name? And then we talked and, you know, she made the baby a real person and I guess validated my grief. And so she was wonderful and, and probably for every day for a week, I talked to her for 10 minutes or 20 minutes and I came back home and there was a Sands group in Townsville she'd put me in touch with. And Mari Jubal was the lady who ran that then. She'd also suffered a stillbirth. And they saved my life. That group saved my life, I think. They were so wonderful. And they would pack up and come up here and have a picnic with me and Josh and bring their other children. And we'd just sit and share stories. And there were other girls here that had lost babies, the same, in different circumstances, but... And so we all got together as well. And it just, you had somebody to talk to that understood because, yeah, if the baby hasn't lived and people haven't seen it, it's a, you get a lot less sympathy. Not that you're looking for sympathy exactly, but a lot less validation than if you have a baby that dies of SIDS or something else. Mm. Does the language shift from you've lost a baby to you've suffered a stillbirth? Yes, I heard very the language much. shift. Very much. Then after you met yes, this group of because people. Because they are real babies, you know, and 
yeah, the support was amazing. So after a while, when I was able to cope and um, I became a listener for SANS myself in Charters Towers, um, I got involved at the hospital where we took up little packs of tiny baby clothes, you know, because these little babies are often so small, the clothes don't fit them. And it's sad that they don't have something to wear when they meet their parents or they're being buried. So we um, got some baby clothes, we knitted and, and other people knitted for us and we made up little packs with tiny nappies and, you know, but we did that and we went, we, they developed a whole pile of brochures and things, handouts that we took to all the hospitals and talked to all the midwives. We did it in town, so we did it here, just to try and get people aware of how it really feels, because unless you've done it, you don't know. How did your marriage? It didn't do well. I we split up when I was forty, so I I went back and had Lewis at thirty eight. I had another baby, and and that pregnancy went well. It all went perfectly normally. Yeah. So I went to Kevin here and said, "Okay, I want every test known to man," and he said to me, "Why? If." You get a test back and it says something's wrong. What are you going to do? And I looked at him and went, nothing. And he said, so let's not do this to yourself. And so he said, so every test you have, it puts the baby at risk. You know, there's, you know, if you start doing amniocentesis and things, it, there's a risk of miscarriage. And, and he said, so no, let's not. There's no reason to assume, you know. And of course there wasn't. Lewis was fine. He was the only one I found out what sex he was. And I, Josh didn't know. I didn't tell Josh till I was about 24 weeks because I didn't want him to go through the misery if something went wrong. Yes, yeah, so we had Lewis and he was just, and he was the perfect baby, the baby who slept all night and the baby who did all the good things that babies are supposed to do. Mm. And Josh was the perfect big brother who was four, nearly four, and who just thought he, the sun shone out of him. So he ran after him and looked after him. So Lewis didn't speak real early because he didn't need to, you know, although he did crawl and walk. But then he became like an 18-month-old that was the most accident-prone child around. Yeah, and so at 40, our marriage was just together. And I contemplated <laughs> having another baby. I must have been mad. You know, you feel like if you have a family, it'll all be better. But of course, it isn't always better. So anyway, we didn't. I didn't go back. And by June that year, I'd moved out and moved had, on. had moved on. Yeah. But stayed here in Charters. I did. I did. My mother wanted me to go to Brisbane and I had really good friends on the Tablelands and I had a really good friend in Toowoomba. And I thought about them all, but I had a, a quite an extensive group of friends here support group and the kids were really happy here and and so I just decided that it was better to for their stability to be in a really familiar setting and and for me too you know I and I've stayed and yeah I've been here ever since I remember the first night I was there on my own at the house I'd sent the kid boys to Brisbane to mum for two weeks while I moved and then I flew them home and I'd spent two days before I left just setting up their rooms, making all of their areas were very familiar and perfect and the living area was perfect. And, and 
I um, remember standing there after all my friends who'd helped me move had gone home and I'm there in this absolute chaos of, of stuff everywhere on my own thinking, oh, it's everything's now your responsibility because I'd married at 19. So, you know, suddenly I'm thinking, oh, you've got to remember to put the bid out and you've got to pay the power, you'll have to pay the power bill and you'll have to do the school fees. And not that I hadn't done some of all of that, but it was like suddenly I'm the only growing up in the house that has to do everything. And it was a bit, then I thought, it'll be right. If it's going to be, it's up to me and I can do this. And I did. So yeah, life's busy. You know, I work full time at the shop and, and I am not a listener for Sands anymore, only because they've become a more official group. They've actually joined with SIDS now. So it's a SIDS and SANS group. They both decided they were doing similar things and they it's silly to keep spreading resources when you can consolidate. So it's a good move, I think. And I had to go to Brisbane then to do a course. It's Everything gets more official and more difficult. And it just wasn't practical. I just couldn't do it. But having said that, there are still people here who will refer me to somebody that they know's had a loss or if I know myself, I just make sure I make contact and say hi and, you know, I'm here and this, you know, this is my experience if you want to hear it, but, you know, I'm here to, mm. and, you know, I do still do a bit of that. You mentioned earlier in the piece that um, after having Emma, the process in the hospital, yeah. that it today it's a lot I better. think it's improved you know um, people are encouraged now to see the baby and spend a lot of time with it and to take photos see I guess back then we didn't have mobile phones to take good photos and it hadn't occurred to me to have a, I think there was a camera probably in the baby's bag but that wasn't sort of the baby's bag didn't come out of the car because there wasn't a baby to dress and so it um yeah, they, they, they do now go to a lot of trouble to get photos and some people now take their babies home and have them at home for two or three days until the funeral. And um, But, yeah, it has become more civilised and it needed to, you know, because the figures on stillbirth is one in every hundred babies in this country. It's a little bit more one point something of every hundred babies in this country is stillborn. And that figure hasn't changed for over 100 years There'll always be some babies, despite all the research and all the effort, there will always be some babies that something goes wrong, you know. And Emma was exceptional in that she managed to live that long. But babies die in lots of ways in utero. And you don't know until you've been there and you start reading books and talking to other people how many other ways it can happen. And that's a bit scary when you're having your next baby because you've heard all these horror stories and you think you can't help. You know, I didn't let myself go mad about it, but you couldn't help but think mm. about what else could be going wrong. I remember when I had my first child, um, the paediatrician said to me um, the next day he came in and he said, while you've just had a baby, you've also just been given an instinct yep. and you need to trust that instinct. Um, for the rest of your life. Oh, well, that was nice of him. But that's the other thing with a stillbirth. You come home because all the hormones have still done the same things they do if you had a live baby. And and so you've got milk leaking everywhere and you're trying to, you know, it does dry up in a few days. But it's all really, you come home having all the same issues that you have with a baby, but you haven't got a baby. 
your arms are empty. And that I think that's the feeling. I've, I read a book later and it said, talked about your empty arms. And I think that is the feeling that your arms are really empty. You know, there isn't anything there. And, and you can't fill them with anything. No. No. Other than time. No, well, while we were in Brisbane um, at Mum's for the two weeks, there was a lady who had a baby um, just around the corner, literally from Mum's, three blocks away, and she put it in the rubbish bin. She thought it was dead, apparently, um, and she had some mental health issues. She put it in the rubbish bin, and the, just the rubbish man heard it before he picked the bin up, otherwise it would have... And so it was, you know, it was a mystery for some weeks, and it, all on the news, of course, and and it was at the hospital and they gave it a name, you know. And I, it nearly sent me around the twist. I had to stop myself thinking about it. I really had to focus on not doing it because all I wanted to do was go and take that baby and to have it to be mine, you know. I just kept thinking, I'll have it, give it to me, and you know, which is silly and you can't do. But it just, I had to stop. But I think they send people, they sent, certainly sent me home too early because they don't know what to do with you in a maternity ward when everyone else has a baby and you're the sort of odd thing out. That mm. it, It's just awkward for everybody. But I do think it has, it has civilised, I think, over time because of people like the groups like SANS going, approaching and talking. Um, I think it has come a long way and, and it needed to. What an awesome community support that you reached out to. Yes, I was so lucky. David Griffiths here is the one who gave me the number and I'm so lucky that he's he the did. chemist here. Yeah, he's such a nice man and I, I, I don't think I'd even been in but some Eddie might have been in or my mother to get something and it said I wasn't coping because that was mum kept saying she's not coping. And that was, you know, he came round and yeah, he'd done some research and knew about it. And Sands was sort of in its infancy then, there weren't, it had been around a few years, but nothing like the strength that it has now and the, you know, the influence. Thank you for sharing your story with me. Okay. Thank you for doing it. I don't know. I don't want it to sound too mad. BRAVE is jointly funded by the Commonwealth and Queensland governments under the Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements. This podcast is produced by Damien Lawarden.